As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle, the Royal Pavilion and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum, Tate, the V&A and many more. Membership is just £73 for an entire year and for those under 30 it's a mere 45 and for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fav when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Just go to artfund.org slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life like a new job, anniversary or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a thousand original artworks from everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass on the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so delighted to say that my guest today is one of the world's greatest super curators, Hans Ulrich Obrist, the artistic director of the Serpentine Gallery here in London, where we are very excitingly recording today. Since his first show, World Soup, The Kitchen Show in 1991, Hans Ulrich has curated more than 300 exhibitions, lectured internationally at academic and art institutions, and published many books, including A Brief History of Curating, Mapping It Out, Ways of Curating, and last year, An Exhibition Always Hides Another Exhibition. He is also widely famed for The Handwriting Project, which protests the disappearance of handwriting in the digital age, which has been taking place via his Instagram at Hans Ulrich Obrist since 2013. Most notable amongst his 300 plus exhibitions, however, include the Do It series, Take Me, I'm Yours, the Swiss Pavilion at the 14th International Architecture Biennale in Venice 2014, as well as countless exhibitions bringing the world's greatest artists to this fantastic institution where I have been visiting my entire life. Favourites include Marina Abramovic's 512 Hours, Hilmaraf Klint, Emma Kunz, Rose Wiley, Etel Adnan, Jean-Claude and Christo, as well as the legendary... 89-year-old Faith Ringgold and the 99-year-old 
Luchita Hurtado, who both exhibited here last summer and who we are very excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome, Hans Ulrich. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Nice to meet you. (laughs) So nice to meet you. So last summer, both Faith Ringgold and Luchita Hurtado totally took over London with their outstanding exhibitions. I mean, it was the first time seeing Luchita Hurtado's work in the flesh for me and the first time seeing a real in-depth survey of Faith's work. I've seen it before at Pippi Holdsworth, but you kind of really got to know her here. I know that despite both approaching their ninth and tenth decades, this was both their first institutional shows in Europe, but also Villa Cheetah, it was her first ever. Why did you want to bring them to the Serpentine in 2019? What were they saying about now? It's very much part of our practice to show artists uh, on the one hand at the beginning of their career to enable beginnings to support young artists but to also look back because you know we live in an age of more and more information there is an exponential growth of information in the world but that does not necessarily mean that there is more memory as the historian Eric Hobsbawm with whom we worked closely here at the Serpentine on a memory marathon one of our knowledge festivals once said that we need an urgent protest against forgetting and this protest against forgetting is particularly important I think in the 21st century it also goes further back actually to my beginnings because I began when I was a teenager, when I was 16, 17, to make a lot of studio visits. And after initially visiting the Swiss artist Fischli Weiss in Zurich, they sent me to Boetti in Rome, but also to Rosemary Trockel in Cologne. And it was my first uh, studio visit with Rosemary, and Rosemary was in her 30s then, and had, of course, also later on an exhibition here at the Serpentine. And Rosemary showed me her work, and she says, you know, she really feels that I should visit also all the artists. And uh, we discussed a lot, to be somehow Louis Bourgeois, we discussed uh, the phenomenon of Louis Bourgeois, because Louis Bourgeois, it was sort of mid-80s. I think the studio visit, my first studio visit with Rosemary happened in 1985. So it was just a moment when Louis Bourgeois started to get attention. There was the first retrospective, I think at MoMA, around 82, and the first museum shows started to pop up in Europe. And Rosemary said, this is of course wonderful that Louis finally gets the recognition she so well-deserved, but at the same time, Rosemary said it's very irritating because there are so many other extraordinary women artists like Louise who just haven't had exhibitions at all. And Rosemary said basically one should really go from city to city uh, all over the world and just ask who is the Louis Bourgeois in town? Yeah. Who, is, who are the Louis Bourgeois in town? Who are the pioneering women artists who need more recognition. And Rosemary said, you know, that's actually something she would very much like to do, but she's an artist, she's busy, she yeah. did her own shows. She said, but that's a great job for you. That's yeah, the for a young job. curator, mm. you know, and I've done it ever since. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's really how, you know, we found and came across works from Ligia Pape. For example, I came to Brazil in 99 for the first time and asked artists, but also curators like Adriano Pedrosa, you know, who is the Louis Bourgeois in Brazil? Yeah. And Adriano spontaneously said Ligia Pape, because Ligia Pape was part with Ligia Clark and Heli Oitithika yeah. of the Tropicalia movement. She doesn't have the recognition she deserves. So, yeah, we went to her studio in, in Rio and made a long interview. I mean, it's also always part of my practice to record the voices of these extraordinary yeah, artists. Yes, so you have 3,000 hours worth of recordings. Exactly, or so the idea is of an archive. <laughs> and so we did a long conversation with Ligia Papi, and that led then to a show we did here at the Serpentine. At the same time, you know, I was in Italy, and um, that was already the same time as Rosemary in the 80s. Mm. And uh, all the artists said, you should really visit Marisa Merz. So we went to see Marisa Merz. And that was a bit difficult because Marisa really didn't want to be recorded because she said <laughs> she hated machines. So we had to leave all our machines on the kitchen table, like the phones and voice recorders. 
and cameras and everything. And we had to do it the old way. We had to, to do stenography. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, was it I was you there. transcribing everything? I, yeah, I was there. I wasn't <laughs> only me. I wasn't alone, luckily. I was there with the editor of Moose magazine, Stefano Cianusci, who, who helped me with the stenography. And then, you know, we recovered it. And again, you know, it later on led to an exhibition. And the same, of course, with Adela Nan, one of the world's greatest poets yes. and artists whose, you know, energy and magnetism has really attracted me from the very first time I saw one of her leporellos. It was, must have been, you know, again, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. I encountered one of her leporellos in Dubai in an exhibition. And it really reminded me of my childhood because when I was a teenager in Switzerland, I always uh, saw Paul Klee. And, uh, you know, Paul Klee, of course, talked about this idea of making the invisible visible. And so yeah. each work of Klee is a kind of a, an act of discovery mm. and exploration. Or as Etelatnan told me, it's a boat in the ocean because Clay was not directing the painting, but the painting was somehow telling him what to do. He had the courage, Etel says, to go into the unconscious and to see the terrifying side of human beings. He painted the most paradise-like of gardens and the most strange and total insanity in human beings. He goes in all directions that a mind can go. Wow. End of quote of Etel. And so, you know, I found out more about Etel Adnan. I realized that she was a polymath yeah. whose work you know, crosses so many dimensions that she was not only a filmmaker and a political journalist, but a poet, a very yes. amazing novelist, also a architect, uh, somebody who made amazing tapestries, a teacher, and also, of course, somebody who makes drawings, a draftswoman. A person. A draftswoman, yeah. <laughs> and so, so in a way, it was really very exciting for me to discover this work. And so I rang her up. I mean, that's always the thing. I yeah. make studio visits and I went to Paris and it was the beginning of a very long, you know, dialogue, which is still ongoing. And I, I know, I loved your um, video with her recently. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. And so Adele, you know, was born in 25 in Beirut. And uh, so she's 95 now and still very strong and has actually started to paint only after her studies at the Sorbonne and at Harvard. She also taught philosophy. Yeah, it's kind of almost like a renaissance. Thing yeah. Because she covers all these fields. And here again, you know, we felt it's so important because no one really knew in London the real world of Etel Adnan. People had seen some paintings, yeah. but no one really knew the whole complexity. So we felt it's important to a retrospective. It's similarly, you know, to what you said about Faith Ringgold. It's just important then to go into depth. I mean, it's interesting, of course, also in a way how one then discovers so many worlds within the world of such an artist. You know, yeah. an artist who has, like Etel, more than 70 years of work, of which most has not been shown. So it was somehow for example, extraordinary to also discover in the process of the Serpentine show that she had also 70 film snapshots of the sea, of the sun, of the sky, yeah. which she started to make in the 80s with a super A camera. We also found out that she made these amazing drawings actually from her window. When she was in New York and in other cities, she would basically draw bridges. Amazing. And so the more, you know, so it's, it's also this process of discovery, yeah. of digging deep, which I think is so... So exciting when one can actually go into these, you know, many different uh, dimensions and it gives a lot of energy, you know, in the process and hopefully gives a lot of energy to the viewer, to the Absolutely. visitor. Absolutely. Do you think something like with all these artists, you know, there are certain works or explorations in their work that maybe they haven't actually ever exhibited before and actually what do they mean making a work then and what does it mean to exhibit it now? Yeah, of course, because very often it's actually the first time that these works then get exhibited. For, yeah. for example, in the case of Lucita Hurtado, yeah. it's even more extreme than with Etel Adnan because she just had never had a yeah. museum show. I mean, in the case of Etel, it was her first survey in the UK mm. 
Mm. But in the case of Lucita at 99, <laughs> it was her first museum exhibition ever. Yeah. With Lucita Hurtado, it was again the same Rosemary Trockel process. Yes. Because I still apply this methodology. So I was in LA about three years ago. I gave a talk there and I made some studio visits. And then Bettina Korek, who is the new CEO of the Serpentine, and Kevin McGarry, the critic and writer, and I were basically having a conversation about artists to visit. And I said, you know, who, who is the Louis Bourgeois of LA? And they said, you know, there has just been a little exhibition of this extraordinary 98-year-old painter, Lucita Hurtado. Yeah. And the show sadly just ended, but we might just want to visit her. Yeah. Um, so we arrived in the apartment. None of us had ever met Lucita before. Yeah. And expected basically a 90-year-old artist to open the door. But somebody very youthful and very young <laughs> opened the door. So we actually thought it was the collaborator. Yeah. Because basically it was somebody in their, their 60s maybe and uh, maximum 70s. And so we sat there for about 10 minutes and I said, you know, when is Lucita arriving? <laughs> and then Lucita said, I am Lucita. <laughs> so, so that was a rather awkward beginning <laughs> of that visit. And um, She does look incredibly youthful. <laughs> yeah. And also the first thing she told us is, I have a responsibility to the world. I have a responsibility to the planet, which yeah. I thought was very beautiful. And at 98, she still occasionally goes on demonstrations for the environment and is, of course, very aware of the fragility of the planet and really has done that her entire life through her drawings, through her paintings, through her prints and has continuously experimented. And so we basically were in this apartment. It's a tiny little apartment. And there were some paintings also of hers. There were some paintings of some of her friends. She yeah. was, of course connected to many of the surrealists she was uh, well of course she was living in mexico in the 1940s or traveling she knew leonora carrington she also knew very well frida Kahlo. yeah she was married to wolfgang palen and had you know always explored the boundaries where the self meets the world and proposed a very radical treatment of the human form as a frame or a landscape you know and had basically fragmented the graphic qualities of language into yeah. these into these extraordinary shapes and never stopped experimenting. And the whole work was both figuration, both abstraction, and always, I mean, what both the abstract work and the figurative work have in common, that it kind of resists the separation of the body yeah. you know, from nature. So there is always this connection yeah. which she feels risks to be lost. And she gives very unexpected perspectives on the body. So she looks down on the body, looks across her own body or straight up, you see a glimpse of the sky yes. with the body. And that reminded me immediately of another great artist we had actually shown here at the Serpentine, Maria Lasnik. Yes. The Austrian artist who was actually one of the artists I knew best. She was mm. uh, a very, very close friend. We had a letter exchange. We are now doing a book of all the letters uh, we had exchanged. And she, Incredible. Because she had written me these very, very long letters about photography and painting. And of course, Maria Lasnik coined this notion of the body awareness paintings. Yeah. She, uh, it's very, very relevant in relation also to Vienna actionism. Uh, she, of course, as opposed to the actionist, she never left the canvas. Yeah. Her whole action happens in the canvas. But these body awareness paintings are full of action. Mm. And when I really saw these unexpected perspectives of Lucita on her own body, you know, the looking down across, the straight up, the sky, you know, offering a view of the world that is both grounded, very grounded, yeah. back to earth, and at the same time transcendental. Then I thought like, of Maria Lasnik and, you know, wanted to see more. And then, I mean, this, the visit lasted about three hours. Incredible. Because it was not only this interconnectivity of human beings and the cosmos, but it's also suddenly, you know, we realized that, of course, it had a lot to do also with Lucita being the generation who 
in 46 had seen the first images of Earth from space. Exactly. And what that yeah. meant, no? Totally. I mean, I guess what's so exciting about her work, when you look at the works even from 1938, when she's exploring how to even capture a gas hob and what it means to also capture light in that way. And then in the 70s with the I Am paintings and the strips of light and then the moth paintings, it, it almost feels like she's trying to reach something that is otherworldly, but then also so connected with the everyday. Yeah, back to Earth. And it's so interesting that, you know, in this plurality of styles and techniques that mark basically her 80 years of work, because yeah. we really saw in this apartment 80 years of practice because she started very, very young and, uh, you know, born in 1920 in Venezuela. She emigrated to the States in 28 and then really never stopped traveling. Her life was a a permanent you know, journey of different exiles. She traveled extensively in Mexico, yeah. uh, was there with her late husband, Wolfgang Palen, mm. the surrealist who has now a big retrospective also in, in Vienna, yeah. which is very interesting. And then, of course, they settled in uh, California, first in San Francisco, uh, where she was again associated to the Dimaton group. And that's also interesting that the fierce independence of Lucita Hotel, because yeah. she was, of course, in Mexico, connected to the Surrealists. Because, of course, many of the Surrealists, Max Ernst, Leonora Carrington, they were in exile yes. in Mexico. It was an incredibly, basically, dynamic exile community of Surrealists. But she never was really a member of the Surrealist group. And at the same time, she was in San Francisco, surrounded by the Dimaton artists, Onslow Ford, and, of course, again, her husband Palin, but she never was really part of the group. She was always independent. So yeah. that's also, I think, super, super fascinating. And this independence then became even stronger in 1951 when she moved to Santa Monica, where she resided ever since. And so for now, more than half a century, she has worked in Los Angeles. And she was there part in the 60s of the early feminist groups of artists. And she was part in the 60s also of the early ecology movements. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary life. And it was clear... The very moment I left his apartment after three, four hours of her telling us about her 80 years of, of her life, about the, this amazing series she had been doing, that there needed to be a show. There was, it was urgent. I think this idea of urgency yes, is also there. I mean, I remember we left the studio and I say this is urgent. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's incredible. I, I mean, I visited the show multiple times last year. And I know many people who kept revisiting because it was almost difficult to even understand. I mean, especially, you know, being a young person like I am, actually realizing how these works were made in the 60s and the 70s because they feel so contemporary and they speak so much to now. It's yeah. very interesting to see that a 98-year-old artist is actually so engaged with what is happening in the present, yet the works the works just feel ahead of their time, I guess. Yeah, and we are very, you know, delighted also that these exhibition now tours because it's basically going on a journey which is very much also the journey of Lucita's life because yeah. in uh, February this year the show opens at LACMA mm. the county museum in Los Angeles amazing which is of course the place where she lives yeah. so it will be her first big exhibition in her own city and then the show tours to the Tamayo Museum in Mexico yeah. where of course she spent a lot of time as well and it's particularly interesting also that it happens in a museum which is dedicated to the memory of Tamayo mm. because Tamayo was one of Luchita's closest friends in her early years in New York. She basically um, worked a lot with him. They painted together in the kitchen yeah. and she gave a lot of inspiration to Tamayo and Tamayo gave a lot of inspiration to her. For her, it was almost like a painting school in yeah. a way, which happened in her kitchen. And so this idea that, you know, from the kitchen in New York where Tamayo <laughs> and she would paint, 
to then, more than 50 years later, a, a solo show at the Tamayo Museum. And we hope very much that the show can then also tour to some other of the many cities where Luchita spent time. I mean, of course, it would be also very important that he could tour to New York City, yeah. because that's another very important city in her life, and also San Francisco. Absolutely. I mean, what must this be like for her, though, to have so much attention now and people responding to her work now? I mean, you know, it, she must see it in a different light in a way. Yeah, I think for her it's incredibly energizing, yeah. you know. It's, she's even younger now and <laughs> does more and more work. And yeah. it's, uh, because she's still working And it's, today. of course, also, I mean, the thing is, what, what I think is also very important in terms of this protest against forgetting, in terms of also doing, you know, big survey exhibitions and, and honoring and celebrating the work and life of such pioneering artists that it happens whilst they are still alive. I totally. think that's incredibly important. So first of all, that they can experience it, but at the same time also it then triggers new work and, 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 and stimulates yeah. Well, in a way, her work has always retained the same themes. It's constantly, I mean, I love that story when she's about eight years old and she kind of accidentally kills the butterfly in her garden and she feels constantly guilty for it. And she's what, like 99 still talking about it. That still retains in her mind that sort of what she owes to ecology in a way. Were there any works in particular that really stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think the most recent work is also very important because she made this amazing series for the exhibition about birth. She did these paintings because she feels that life is endangered. So she wanted to somehow celebrate birth. And, and that, of course, has a lot to do with extinction. It has a lot to do with what Elizabeth Colbert calls the age of mass extinction. Mm. Colbert describes that we are living in the sixth mass extinction. I think Luchita has felt that throughout her life and feels it now particularly strongly. So I thought it was very moving that the show that the show ended on that. But then at the same time, you know, also to show the less known geometric work, I think was for us very interesting because one of the very few exhibitions which happened in the early days of Luchita was actually a show in the 70s, a self-organized show at the Women's Building in Los Angeles in yeah. 1974, which featured a group of geometric painting. And it's these paintings with basically expressive lines and also fragmented letterings, you know, where certain letters yes. keep reappearing in an almost cinematographic way. And they sort of been cut apart and then reconfigured and stitched back together. And then it hides some of the words and some of the words are visible. Mm. And it was very exciting also to show this less known work and somehow almost reconstitute this exhibition from 74 because in one of the powder rooms of the Serpentine Space, we somehow redid this show from 74. Incredible. Almost like an exhibition within the exhibition, so as to say. So that for me was also a, a great moment. And of course, this idea of stitching, you know, has also to do with her connection to textile. Mm. And I mean, there is so much still to discover of Luchita because there is, of course, also Luchita, the photographer. Oh, she wow. always would she always would photograph her shadow over many years. And so one day, you know, there can be a photography show of all her photographs in a photography museum. At the same time, there is also her clothes. There's her work with textile because she's a fashion designer. She's a textile wow, designer. God. <laughs> she has not bought a single piece of clothes since 30s or 40s <gasps> and has designed all her own clothes. And there is a cupboard with hundreds of items she designed herself. I mean, that would be a great show for the Costume Institute. Yes. really do that at the Met. Yeah. That's a show for the Costume Institute. <laughs> let's get it. Let's make it happen. But, you know, what's also interesting is how many parallels there are with someone like Faith Ringgold as well. You know, this idea of protest and this idea of stitching. I mean, with Faith Ringgold, what was it that immediately attracted you? But also this idea of, of also text as well with her work. I think there's so many parallels. Yeah, I mean, uh, Faith Ringgold is also an extraordinary encounter and it happened a lot to artists because in a way, I would say 
part of the Rosemary Tuckle methodology is also to ask artists about other artists. And I would always yeah. ask in my conversations, artists, you know, who inspires you? Who are your inspirations? And uh, I used to always ask, you know, who are your heroes or heroines? But I think the word he hero or heroine is, is not really the right word because it's more got to do with, you know, inspiration. It yeah. has got to do with oxygen maybe mm, also. You know, where, where do artists get oxygen from? Where... So I would always ask that. And it's interesting that actually doing studio visits in New York over the last five years, very regularly artists would say, you should look into Faith Ringgold. Yeah. And uh, of course, I was familiar with her children books. You know, I was familiar, as we all are, with some of her iconic paintings, like the painting at MoMA, yes. uh, which is uh, now mm. next to Demoiselle d'Avion, yes. American people in the new hang of MoMA. And which has been an important part, actually, really of the MoMA collection for several years now. And there's always so many people in front of that painting. It's very much a pilgrimage. Yeah. But I was not so much, you know, familiar, again, with like, similarly to, to Etel, with the incredible breadth and the incredible, you know, complexity of the oeuvre. And so I felt, you know, let's make a studio visit. And uh, we encountered Lucita because her studio is not in New York. It's quite far outside New York. So we had actually the first meeting in her gallery yeah. in New York City. Looked at a lot of work, some of her older work, some of her newer work. So already in that first meeting, there was so much I wasn't familiar with. There were his, her sculptures, yeah. the extraordinary sculptures she did. There were also, you know, of course, her books. Yeah. There were many, many more books than I thought. I was familiar with one children's book, but I didn't know. Tar Beach, yeah. Exactly, Tar Beach. And I was familiar with Tar Beach, but I wasn't familiar with her many, many other children's books. So we yeah. looked at that. And of course, in that first meeting, you know, Faith told us anyone can fly. All you got to do is try. Yeah. It's a great motto, I think, for us today. And I sort of, you know, was told by her a lot about her childhood in Harlem mm. in the 30s, you know, growing up in the neighborhood of Jacob Lawrence, growing up in the neighborhood also of uh, the extraordinary, you know, James jazz Baldwin, musicians yeah. at the time, mm. of writers like James Baldwin, exactly. Of course, uh, in a way of her being one of the great storytellers. I think the extraordinary thing about Faith is that she uses paintings for for storytelling because basically ever since the beginning of her work, she really, and that's where we thought, you know, again, immediately during the meeting, it became clear that they needed to be a survey because there was totally. amazing work from the 60s to the 2010s, you know, and there had never been a European institutional exhibition. So we felt it would be really urgent to show her political posters also yeah. because she, she created a lot of uh, political posters which uh, were not really understood yeah. in the 60s and basically she, she did one for, for Angela Davis but she told us Angela Davis didn't really like it at the time <laughs> and so so we wanted, we wanted to celebrate these, these posters so the artist as an activist but also show her paintings of course, her tankas, her story quilts and, um, and of course begin the show with the American people, because the extraordinary mm. series, the American people from 63 to, to 67, is still, is, is incredibly relevant totally. for our time, because it shows inequalities, it shows racial tensions that she witnessed, you know, during the civil rights era. And these are very important history paintings. It's really uh, very important history paintings of the 20th century, and uh, it's very much a response to the black power movement by a painter, mm. by a visual artist. And in a way, we felt that that work needed to be the, the center, the beginning of the exhibition. And then, of course, the 70s are a very important period because her art started to embrace also feminism. And yes. she started with her then very young daughter, Michelle Wallace, <laughs> yeah. who um, became, of course, the extraordinary theoretician and, mm. and activist she is. So they started to actually 
go to museums in New York and demand gender and racial equality. And these political posters are also a very important part of the show. It's also interesting that actually Faith was also a curator. Yeah. She, together with Michelle, was involved in the People's Flag show and she was actually arrested at the time mm. for, for f flag desecration. So that's a whole other very important aspect no, of, her, of her work, sort of the artist as a curator. And then I think it's a shift. Then a shift occurs. And we wanted to document that shift in the show, which goes from traditional oil to basically the first unstretched work where she used fabric. And that was actually very inspired by Buddhist and Tibetan Tanka yeah. paintings. And uh, there was the slave rape, feminists, also windows of the wedding. Mm. Um, and these were actually made in collaboration with her mother, yeah, who, really was a fashion Posey, designer. Mm. Who, who was a fashion designer. So yeah. another interesting link to Luchita here. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, an interesting, so many links, exactly. an interesting connection. The connection there also fashion to textile. And then, of course, the Tankas which were at the end of the second room, they then led to the next epiphany. So you can see, I mean, similarly to Etel, to Luchita, Faze is, is not only an extraordinary artist, but a serial inventor. Yeah. I would say we can call her a serial inventor because then in the 80s, she comes up with this idea of the, the story quilt. So there's also the story how the quilts actually started because basically Faze is not only an extraordinary painter and an artist and sculptor and storyteller, but she's also an extraordinary writer. Yeah. So she early on actually wrote her autobiography mm. and she was very angry. She said it was one of her most upsetting moments in her life when the, the potential publisher of the autobiography wanted to correct her autobiography and said yeah. you should do it this way, you should do it that Gosh. way. She says that's really outrageous. Yeah. I know my story, that is my story, <laughs> and no one can prevent me from writing my story. Mm. Anyone can fly, all you got to do is try. So mm. she basically just said, it's a very do-it-yourself spirit. She just said, you know, I do it anyhow. Yeah. yeah. And and so she basically started to incorporate her writings into these quilts. So in that sense, you know, the quilts basically became like wall books. Mm. They became like a way of her actually, you know, articulating her freedom of speech because she basically says she could write on her art whatever she wanted. No mm. one could stop her. So these works weave image and text, you know, very much in the tradition of quilting. And um, uh, it's also the, you know, the, the family history of her great-great-grandmother uh, to, to now. And so, so basically um, she did these amazing quilts like the American Collection, the Coming to Jones Road, yeah. and basically visiting all these African-American histories, including also that of the underground railroad and, and and so in a way of course because her work started to be exhibited a lot and it started to be exhibited uh, all over the united states yeah. also in a lot of universities many many hundred thousand people started to see these quilts and so then one day actually a publisher from random house came across one of her quilts mm. and said like wow this is extraordinary and rang her up and said we should do a children book yeah and so that's how then the next chapter started. So, I mean, not only did she basically publish her work herself and uh, basically um, uh, showed that her publisher was wrong. Yes. That she should tell her story the way she wanted to tell it. But she then also, by doing that, by self-publishing it, made 
best-selling children book <laughs> and millions of children you know grew up and keep growing up yeah. with this book so it's an extraordinary story of yeah. diy <laughs> absolutely i think there are so many elements to faith's work i think what's so interesting as well as how truthful and firsthand everything is as well you know she's experiencing life in harlem in the 50s and 60s and 70s segregation you know what black power means the civil right you know so it's such a loaded politically loaded time and coming firsthand from an artist she's also a kind of historical documenter as well as an artist and not only are her works beautiful but they really like you said earlier tell a story of what people were living through in america yeah and she tells us lots of different stories i mean it's not only the political story it's the civil rights movement she yeah. tells us it's her own story it's the story of her own biography but it's also the history of jazz mm. because in the jazz stories she tells us the whole jazz stories of her own experience and at the same time also the jazz story of the great protagonists of, yeah. of uh of jazz and i think it also coming back to the idea of storybooks as well and this idea that the you know there is this artwork and this brilliant artist who is obviously exhibited now in museums but how people can access this as a children's book in the home and this kind of going outside of the museum and introducing people to art from a different perspective which becomes more inclusive yeah of course it's very inclusive because also the i mean duchamp said the viewer does 50 percent of her work and she of course you know invites the viewer to raise their voice, to unite, to yeah. tell their own story. And I think that this idea also of empowerment is very important, that she empowers the viewer. You know, I mean, as she says, raise your voice, unite, tell your story. I mean, yeah. this is a great motto. And why do you think that she is being so celebrated now? I mean, she's on the front cover of January's Art Forum. American People is in that prominent position in the newly hung MoMA. Why are we looking back to her work now? What is so present about it? I mean, I think the question is also, why only now? Yes, it's it's there is it's it's incredibly late, you know, and her work could have had this attention thirty or forty years ago, which yeah. is why Hobsbawm is right. <laughs> it's a protest against forgetting. Mm. So, how do you think that someone like Faith Ringgold and Luchita Hurtado have really actually disrupted the art historical canon? I mean, I think the fact is that they have been, you know, omitted in yeah. a way from the canon. And I think what is very important about this idea of protesting against forgetting is to somehow correct that. Mm. And, and that's, I think, what exhibitions uh, can do, uh, what such, you know, also surveys with scholarship can do, exhibitions which go into depth can do. But that's also why it's very important that books are being published. So for all of these shows, we also publish catalogs. Yeah. And uh, uh, of course, in the case of, of, of Lucita, it's her first book ever. Yeah. There has never been a book on Lucita Hurtado. With Face, of course, there have been books, but there hasn't been a a survey book of a museum show and we're very happy that actually the the Lucita show of course tours as mentioned to LA but that also the Face Ringgold exhibition will tour to the United States oh, it's going to wow. go to Glenstone in Washington DC amazing and hopefully many more cities and it's interesting also I think why now that I think it's relevant for a new generation to see that work for young artists I mean Rainer Maria Rilke wrote this little book which is the letter to a young poet and one of the questions I always ask artists is, besides where their inspiration comes from, is what kind of advice they would give to a young artist. And yeah. it's very interesting when I ask Faith, she says, uh, you have to recognize that there is no secret to attaining any kind of prominence in the art world. You have to work hard at what it is you're doing. And if people don't like it now, don't worry about it. They'll come around later, do the work and keep doing it. Maybe they like it, but you have to love it. When you love your work, you're going to persist in it. Don't change it to please people. That's the thing you can't do, as far as I can see. I tried it. 
I can't please anybody. Please yourself, and eventually you will be successful at that. We need to see what you see, what you want us to see. It's unique, it's your work, it's your life, it's your vision. As an artist, you must unite, you must raise your voice and tell your story. I mean, that's a beautiful advice to the next generation. Absolutely. What a fantastic way to end. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests what they would say to their artists of choice. But as you know, Faith and Lucita, perhaps if there was an artist from history, a female artist from history, who you would have loved to have met, who would it be and what would you say to her? Um, you mean an unrealized encounter? Yes, an, an unrealized encounter. There are so many, of course, <laughs> figures from history I would have loved to meet. Let me think for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I would have loved to ask uh, Agnes Martin um, about her unrealized project. (laughs) And I would have loved to ask Agnes Martin about her advice to to a young artist. And I would have loved to ask Eva Hesse about her unrealized project and about her advice to, to a young artist. And then, of course, there is my unrealized encounter with Lina Bobardi, who sadly passed away. Because I'm, you know, also, of course very interested in, you know, in architecture. We built pavilions here at the Serpentine. And for me, the Brazilian architect, Lina Bobardi, I would love, would have loved to invite her to, to design a pavilion. She sadly, it wasn't possible because she isn't alive anymore. And I would have loved to have a conversation with her. But because all of that is impossible, I curated a show actually in her house in, in Sao Paulo, uh, the floating house, yes, the glass, yeah, the glass house, house, yeah. the Casa de Vidro. And I've been thinking every day there, you know, working in the house, living in the house, what I would have asked her. So Lina Bobardi, I really, I really would have loved to meet Lina Bobardi. She's one of the great architects of the 20th century. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much, Hans Rick Thank you very much. It's such a great pleasure to participate in your extraordinary podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to the 16th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Hans Ulrich Obrist. I am full of such admiration for his energy and enthusiasm to platform these brilliant artists and bring them to the world stage. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Teddy Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my favourite activities and thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £73 per year and for those under 30, it's £45. Just go to artfund.org forward slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a thousand original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to curated selection of ones to watch. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com.